the word of our God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would uh, take this introduction and write it on our hearts and that that which Luke so long ago by inspiration desired for Theophilus would be true for us. Give us certainty, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke begins with this uh, introduction, and he acknowledges something in the introduction, which I I suspect an editor today might tell him to remove. He starts off saying, a lot of people have already done what I'm doing. Uh, This isn't an original book, he's saying. There were a lot of people, apparently, who were putting narratives out there about this man, Jesus. Now, we know some things that Luke isn't talking about when he says that. He's not talking about Matthew or John, because neither of those had been written yet. And he's not talking about some of those pseudo-gospels that National Geographic and uh, 60 Minutes and all of them like so much, Gospel of Thomas and... Uh, Gospel according to Mary or Peter, things that have been proven to have been written a hundred years later. Uh, He's not talking about those. Uh, He he may possibly be including Mark in his comment of verse 1, although that's even questionable. But but he's talking about a lot of things that have been put out there, and we just don't know what those things are. Uh, Were some of these things done on purpose to make Jesus look bad? A smear campaign from the chief priests and scribes. That's quite possible. I'm sure that they had their version, that they were publishing tracts to make this man Christ look bad. But probably a lot of what's been put out is actual followers of Christ. They want to share Christ with others, what Christ has done for them. Uh, and, and perhaps they're putting out, some have suggested, little, little tracts that have three or four personal reflections. You know, here are the four times that I happened to talk to Jesus. Or here's that one instance where he healed me or cast that demon out. Important good accounts. Uh, but what seems to have happened, what, whatever these accounts that Luke talks about, whatever they were, whoever wrote them, Maybe even some of them were well-meaning but inaccurate because they weren't inspired and their memories were bad. Whatever the case with these many have taken in hand to write out the narrative, the result is that Theophilus is confused. He can't quite get his mind around this Jesus. What's true? What's just 
What's just someone being wishful thinking? What's someone uh, uh, getting his memory wrong? Uh, what, what parts are right? What parts are, are wrong? And so, although Luke is admitting that a lot of other people have done it first, he starts off with this confident thought that he took in hand to write this because he had a perfect understanding of these things from the beginning. What, what a statement. <laughs> a perfect understanding. Now, there are two ways we could understand what Luke is getting at here. Um, some, and this, this tends to be more of the older commentators, think Luke is acknowledging his, his self-awareness that he has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write out this gospel account. He has a perfect understanding. Well, how would he have that? Well, God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out this word and used this prophet. No prophecy has come by that prophet Luke, but that which was worked in him by the Holy Spirit. Well, it's possible that that is what Luke is getting at. It's also possible, and I think the ESV translates this uh, nicely here with, with the idea of having a complete understanding, not a complete, but a, a full understanding, that kind of idea. The, the indication in some of our newer translations is that not that he has a perfect in, inspired awareness here, but that he has researched it and heard it clearly enough that he knows he has the complete story. Some other guy might be putting out four events where he met Jesus. Luke is going to tell us from birth to death to ascension. It's a complete gospel. It has an order to it so that you can hear all those other things you might have read. Now you're going to know how they all fit together and what parts are true. I think either way we look at his thought there, it's a powerful thought. What do we believe about Jesus? Here is. A clear account from a man who did his research and had his witnesses and had his eyewitnesses. Perhaps even Mary, who laid these things up in her heart as an eyewitness to the events that take place. And later, the apostles, those who, verse 2, were first called from the beginning to be witnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them on. Luke has done his research with the eyewitnesses. Here is a reliable account from a human perspective. And we know that he was inspired to do that work. The Holy Spirit not using Luke like some kind of puppet. But the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to do the work of research and write the account and the Holy Spirit ensuring it was breathed out with perfection, inerrancy, uh, infallibility. Uh, not just that it's without errors, but it's incapable of errors because God gave it through Luke. It's a powerful claim. Many have taken in hand to do this, says Luke. But this is the good version. Of course, the same can be said of Mark and Matthew and John as each one progressively comes on the scene. But here we have Luke claiming something powerful, very powerful. That's important for us today as well. We're about to come up on Advent and around 
uh, Advent and around uh, Easter, we, we typically see National Geographic and 60 Minutes and other different uh, questions. Who was Jesus? What really happened? Was there really a star? You know, all these, it happens every year. Someone's going to have that special on this Christmas too. And Luke is telling us right here, you don't need any of that. And the questions don't need to be asked anymore. Here you go. Here's the answer. You can have certainty. It's, a, it's an important thing. Why study Luke? Because he says right here that the goal of the book is that you have certainty. Certainty about what has happened. Certainty about what was fulfilled. Certainty about Jesus. You and I need certainty. We need certainty because we're in an age of uncertainty. I I think especially we we can think of two big areas where there's such uncertainty around us right now. There's uncertainty in the church in America. And there's uncertainty in our culture. There's uncertainty in the evangelical church in America. And uh, I was trying to think of how to prove this to you. If, if, if you're just in a church that seems pretty certain about a lot of things and don't really get out and experience the wider evangelical church in our day. Uh, and so I, I, I jumped online and I tri- typed in evangelicalism certainty. And you can do the same. One of the first websites that popped up was a website called progressivechristianity.org. And I clicked on it and the first thing I saw were five core values of progressivechristianity.org. And here's the fifth one. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that as Christians, we are to commit to a path of lifelong learning believing that there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. There is more value in questioning than in absolutes. There's more value in asking questions than in getting answers. Who cares about the destination? There's way more value in just having a nice journey. Core value, number five. Then I clicked around on the website a little bit and I found uh, some, some aids for worship, for, for planning worship, a progressive Christian worship. And I found this one section, from answers to questions. And there were 34 statements. I will not read all 34. You can look them up yourselves. But let me share, I think, five of them for, with you here. Number six, we are not here to make timeless statements, but rather to contribute to the ongoing river of thought. In case you're not sure what that means. Number eight, there are no permanent certainties, only interim flashes of wisdom along the way. What would a permanent certainty be? 
You are the Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those are all, you realize, permanent certainties. But no, 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 no. There are none of those. None. Only interim flashes of wisdom along the way. Jesus made some statements. They were flashes of wisdom in his time. But we're in this, remember number six, ongoing river of thought. And you know, the river evolves. And you better evolve too. But well, let's move on from that. Number 10. Beyond the black and white definitions of good and bad lie infinite combinations of love and destruction which we seek to put into simplistic formula for the sake of lazy and insecure minds. Let let me read that again. Beyond the black and white definitions of good and bad lie infinite combinations of love and destruction, which we seek to put into simplistic formula for the sake of lazy and insecure minds. What's that saying? Well, If, if you were to decide you wanted to communicate what morality was, good and bad, and, and say, define those under ten points or commands to, to show what morality is, you would only be doing that for simplistic and insecure minds. But you would actually be doing something bad for us. Because it would be better to not have those simplistic uh, and uh, formula of good and bad, like Ten Commandments. It would be better to leave it undefined. Because there's this beauty in the dance of love and destruction. And by the way, I've left out a couple of points that talked about the dance. Specifically, the dance of uncertainty and faith. Apparently, they're dance partners. Uh, Number 12, embrace of the unknown is the doorway to wisdom. I I thought the doorway to wisdom was something else myself. I thought it was the fear of the Lord. But, But apparently, I was wrong. Embracing the unknown, you know, embracing the unknown would be saying something like, Is there a Lord at all? Or or are there many gods or no gods? Is this God the best God? That's all unknown. I don't know. know, Maybe you know better than I know. That's the embrace of the unknown. There lies wisdom. Not one who says, I am the door. And I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No, that, that's not the unknown. That's, that's clarity. Lord, we don't know where you're going. Oh, you know me. I am the way. <clears throat> Number 32. I'm skipping way ahead. You can, go read, you can go read the others if you want. Last one from this website. 32. Having a framework of belief which is loosely held can be empowering. But having a framework of belief that is tightly held can be disempowering. 
I actually agree with that statement. Having a faith system that is tightly held, confidently held, is disempowering. It's much more empowering to say, oh, you know, maybe this, maybe that. Yeah, Be- because, because as someone discovered long ago, then everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that's just empowering, isn't it? Of course it's disempowering to hold tightly held beliefs. In fact, what it requires is poverty of spirit, meekness, and humility before our God. There's nothing more disempowering than that. The the question is, which system gives eternal life? Well, I'll move on from that website and get more personal. Rob Bell, big name in evangelicalism. Uh, Rob Bell, I I was reading the script from a podcast of Rob Bell this last week where he was talking about the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And in that last section of the Gospel of Matthew, Christ comes to the disciples on the mountain and some of them worshipped, but some of them trembled and didn't believe. And yet, at the, in that particular text, Jesus never rebukes them explicitly in the text. So here was the podcast. Rob Bell saying, you see, Jesus is totally fine with unbelief, skepticism. That's okay. He has no problem with that. He's not, he's not afraid of your unbelief. So go ahead and be skeptical. It was strange because I, I flipped a page back in my scriptures here and found him entering the upper room and they disbelieved and he rebuked them. But that's, that's Rob Bell, hugely popular voice in evangelicalism. Here's another quote from Rob Bell. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real, earthly, biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was just a bit of mythologizing that the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of cults whose gods had virgin births. Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Rob Bell, if he's watching, here's my answer. No. (laughs) If definitive proof was shown that Jesus was just another guy, could I still be a Christian? No, I'd quit. You'd have my resume... uh, not resume, the opposite of that. Resignation tomorrow, after I'd slept in. Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? If he's just some guy about whom we've heard many lies, no. But of course, that's not where Rob Bell goes when he writes this. He says, it wouldn't shake my faith. Irrelevant if Jesus is virgin born. One more quote. And that's from Peter Enns. Also highly influential, a little less popular, but highly influential evangelical. He used to teach at Westminster Seminary. And then Westminster Seminary let him go. 
for a number of reasons having to do with theology. But after he left Westminster, he published a book called The Sin of Certainty, Why God Desires Our Trust to Be More Than Correct Beliefs. I'm sorry, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Correct Beliefs. So we're trusting in something that may not be a correct belief. But that's okay. The sin of certainty, that says it all, doesn't it? Here's a comment he makes there. A faith that promises to provide firm answers and relieve our doubt is a faith that will not hold up to the challenges and tragedies of life. And on the off chance Peter ends ever hears this, I want to challenge him to a history debate. A, a faith that promises firm answers and promises to relieve our doubt is the only faith that will hold up to the challenges and tragedies of life. the only faith. And I'd like to challenge Peter ends with this this challenge. Show one example in history of people who held their beliefs loosely going into the furnace, shoved into the arena, pressed out with their children onto the middle of a frozen lake in the middle of winter. You won't find it. You won't find it because before that event ever happens, you say Caesar is Lord. The Pope is the head of the church. My other religion wasn't so bad after all. Peter ends can't show one example, I'm willing to say, of a loosely held set of beliefs that hold up to the tragedies of life. And he is being insulting to those teenage Muslim, formerly Muslim girls, isn't he? The the girls we've heard about so much in the past decade in Muslim countries who professed faith in Jesus. Not an uncertain, vaguely held belief, but a certain one so firmly held that they, they professed faith knowing what dad would do. That dad would drag them out into the street and stand by as the men of the community beat her at best and killed her more probably and probably raped her first. None of those girls died because they weren't sure about their beliefs. So you and I need the Gospel of Luke. Uh, by the way, I, I had eight pages of quotes and uh, references and things from varying professing Christians that I could have added to what I've just done. But then the sermon would never end. It, we live in an age of the church being uncertain, and all the things I've already just read to you shows that a a great many who claim to be Christian worship 
uncertainty. They don't worship the one living and true God. They worship uncertainty. And there are many other evangelicals, true brothers and sisters in Christ, who would fall into what I think of as a a soft version. Um, They affirm the faith and don't doubt it themselves. But they, they want to be encouraging to those who have doubts. And so they, they do things like this, a, a popular evangelical book, which in many ways is quite good, by a man who claims to be reformed, starts off by talking about Doubting Thomas. Talking about how the Doubting Thomas story proves that Jesus is not afraid of your skepticism. And that he graciously embraces you despite your struggles with belief. Despite the fact that in the text Christ rebukes Thomas graciously, but he does rebuke him for unbelief. And he tells him, do not be unbelieving, but believe. And he says, blessed are those who believe. And yet, there are many that I could find if, if we just took a few minutes to look up the Doubting Thomas story in American podcasts by true Christians today who want to be soft-pedaling. They want to be inclusive of those who are struggling with faith. Not just those who are struggling with faith, whom we need to graciously help towards faith, but those who don't want to find certainty. Because they love their uncertainty. The church is in a state of uncertainty in our age. We may feel like we're pretty secure in certainty in our conservative churches. But we need to be aware what we're in the midst of. And what people who claim to be our brothers and sisters are saying. We're in an age of uncertainty. We're also in an age of uncertainty in terms of our culture I can make this point much quicker because it's pretty easy to make, isn't it? In fact, I liked how Christopher Ash gets at this. Christopher Ash tells a story of how he was trying to follow a European election. And he, he followed that election by looking at news services from multiple different countries in Europe, reporting about that one election cycle. And he says, it's not just that they all had their own opinions. They told mutually exclusive accounts. There was a time when when you watched the news, if you watched differing news cycles, you would get 80% the same story at least, right? You'd get the same basic story, the same basic result told, and you might get their personal opinions thrown in. But Ash is saying, I I was following this news cycle and there was nothing the same. Someone's lying. And Ash says, how can I possibly know who? And there's the problem, isn't it? We live in a day when how can you possibly know what news cycle, what news story is the truth and what's the lie? And as one brother in Christ here in our town said to me six months ago, the the struggle for him is, even when he thinks he figures out which side is telling the truth, 
he starts questioning himself as to whether he's an extremist. How can we know anything? In a culture that presents so much truth, but it's each individual's truth. And even facts become obscure. Are people covering things up? Or are those conspiracy theorists saying there's stuff being covered up? And can you even be somewhere in the middle? Uncertainty. A great deal of uncertainty. The days are long gone when you can watch the news and then crawl into bed thinking that's the way it is. And Christopher Ashe then points out that in the midst of all this fear of uncertainty, many of us retreat into fantasy. And that's done in a lot of ways, isn't it? Maybe you make up your own version of what the facts are. And you hold to those dogmatically. Maybe you're retreating even more than that. It can be through TV and movies, binge-watching, video games. It can be through the fakeness of our social media. Being discouraged and despairing and on Facebook smiling. Fantasy. It, it, it can be... It can be... Simply through the idea of my truth, my identity, on and on. We, we live in an age of uncertainty. So lest you missed it when I stated some of these things at the beginning, what does Luke offer us? What does this gospel offer us? It offers us true events. Verse 1, a narrative that isn't shifting, it actually happened. The prophecies of the Old Testament, he says, were fulfilled among us. And the us are many witnesses. And what is Luke going to do to show that? He's going to show us an event and he's going to show us Isaiah, Moses, and David. Declaring by inspiration what Jesus would do hundreds of years earlier. And he's going to say these events are fulfilled. In fact, Jesus himself, in what may be the central statement piece of the whole gospel, says, Today, these events are fulfilled in your presence. And there were a lot of witnesses. A lot of witnesses. Some of which who were against him until after the fact. Because Luke will write in book two, then many even of the priests believed. You'd better believe that a priest who yelled crucify him and wanted him kicked out of the the temple when he believed, would say something. Many witnesses, true events, we can know. This isn't just one of multiple untrustworthy statements. If you want to know at Christmas time how Jesus was born, Luke tells you how. 
Not just many witnesses, but long-term eyewitnesses. Again, verse 2. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And I hinted at this before, but I, I agree with those who think there's evidence that Mary herself was one of these witnesses. Mary, who was there before the conception, and whom we find out was also there at the cross. Jesus says to John, your mother, and to Mary, your son. A witness of the whole thing. Imagine sitting down with Mary and hearing about her son. Well, we get to in the Gospel of Luke. But not just that verse 2 is clear. Also, the apostles are emphasized here and other disciples, ministers of the word who have delivered this event. People who were with Jesus for three and a half years. They would have seen him trip up if he'd tripped up. They would have seen the charlatan. Surely one disciple would have walked away and said, it's all a fake. Even Judas doesn't do that. Eyewitnesses. And teaching that assures, Luke tells us we can have teaching that assures that you may have certainty of those things in which you were instructed. What certainty? Well, to our uncertainty, the Gospel of Luke declares very many fundamental things. For example, the virgin birth. where the witness to the event actually says, how in the world is this to take place? How can this be? I'm a virgin. She wasn't told, go find Larry down the block. Or even Joe, advance the date of your wedding. We have an eyewitness account to the virgin birth, Mary herself. We have an emphasis On the resurrection. Think of what we read in Luke 24 with Bill. How does the gospel end? Jesus says these things must have been. They had to happen. The death had to happen. The resurrection had to happen. You can be certain of this. It's right out of Jesus' own mouth. Luke 24. And the ascension on which... The gospel itself ends. Oh, that you may be certain. He didn't die, and he didn't die a second time. He ascended to the Father's right hand. Essential beliefs in response to our uncertainty. You can be uncertain of all sorts of stuff going on out there. And this week as you vote, you can be uncertain about what the results are going to be. And whatever the results, how bad things are going to be, or how good. You can be uncertain of what you hear on the news. But Luke is saying to you, don't be uncertain about Jesus, about his virgin birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the essentials, what we might, we might call the fundamentals, some might have called it. And to our fears and our fantasies, Luke responds with certainty as well, to our fears and the, the fantasies we want to re- 
retreat into, we find salvation for needy sinners. If you want to boil the book down to just one thing you should be certain about, it's how a needy, helpless, poor, pathetic sinner can be saved. Regardless of their status, rich or poor, their gender, their their background. Luke, more than anyone else, goes out of his way to show both the poor and the rich rebuked. The poor and the rich redeemed. The poor and the rich living for Christ. He goes out of his way to show women of great faith and Gentiles of faith. Even, again, as we think of Luke 24 that we read with Bill earlier in the service, to our fears and our fantasies, Christ walks into the room and says, Peace to you. Peace to you. Believe. He says to his disciples, why are you doubting? Believe. And he shows them his hands and his side. Well, I don't get to touch his hands and his side. Remember what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. That we have the same faith. That we by faith, through the faith in the word and the testimony given by the apostles, were there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and in the upper room. We can have certainty and that these things were necessary for the remission of sins. These things are all put before our fears. And as Christopher Ashe says, therefore we should ask ourselves, what areas of my life are so painful that I take refuge in fantasy? What doubts cloud my contentment in the truth of Jesus? Thank God that his message is certain, solid, reliable, true. You can rest your life on it. How wonderful to find certainty. Amen. So let me send you out with two challenges this morning as we engage in a study of this Gospel of Luke. Our first challenge, I want to challenge you in the months ahead to walk out of church each week more confident in your faith. Granted, you can't make that happen, can you? And neither can I. Only the Holy Spirit can work this confidence in you. But it's a confidence we should long to have, not just when we're studying Luke, but when we walk out from any worship service with the preaching of the Word, faithfully assurance assurance is something we don't all have consistently I'm aware of that I think that's why some of these these people voicing the worship of uncertainty can be so dangerous because we sometimes feel lacking in our assurance don't we you do. Many of you. 
That's why I love Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, reminding us that assurance is not of the essence of faith. Meaning, you may be absolutely assured of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sometimes doubt that that gospel has saved you. You can have full assurance in Christ and his ability to save and sometimes question yourself. But we shouldn't be content staying there. And we find assurance not in looking at how good I'm being. That's what we often want to do, isn't it? We want to base our assurance on how much I've grown, how faithful I am. Westminster Confession 18.2 says we should ground our assurance upon the certainty of the divine truth of the promises of salvation. Assured on the divine truth of the promises of salvation. I believe what God has said. I believe that He has said it, therefore it will be. I believe that all who come to me, I will never cast out. Well, I've come to him. As pathetic and faithless as I am, I've come to him. Well, then I should be assured. We need to come, if we are to walk out of worship each week, more confident in our faith. We need to come prepared. A shorter catechism puts it, That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend to it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Sometimes we lack assurance because we don't lay up what we've heard in the preaching of the word in our hearts. And therefore, we don't practice it in our lives. We're content to sit and then sigh. Ah, oh, the benediction. I, I'm, not acute, I'm not looking at any one of you. But I listen to sermons sometimes too. It's easy to not lay it up in our hearts. And to not practice it in our lives. And sometimes it's easy for those things to happen because we haven't diligently prepared. Maybe we partied too hard last night. I'm not talking about sinful party. We, we didn't give ourselves enough rest. We didn't clear our Sunday morning of all that would distract us from worshiping God. We didn't pray before entering into worship that God would claim our hearts. But we need to do all these things if we are to have confidence in the faith, if we are to truly benefit from this sermon series on Luke or any other sermon series. We must approach it seriously that we might be confident in our faith as we leave. And secondly, I want to challenge you with this other goal as we study Luke A goal to spread this certainty throughout our uncertain generation. 
it's all well and good to study Luke and to say, yes, here is certainty. It's another thing to go out when we know we will be hated, maybe canceled, despised, or ignored, and still say, I know you don't want to hear this, but here's the certainty you lack. But that's what Luke is doing. And that's what Luke is calling us to do. The Holy Spirit through this gospel is calling us to this. If we believe this gospel, we must respond with this gospel. J.C. Ryle comments at this point in his commentary, we have a, a written volume which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Which, of course, is the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 3.15. This volume is able to make us wise through salvation. If we believe this, we must go out with boldness and confidence with this. We, beloved, Stand on a rock, and all else is sinking sand. May God give us both the assurance and the courage to reach out to those who are sinking, yes, even professing Christians in liberal churches and wayward churches, maybe even in good churches, but who don't believe the gospel preached. May we have the courage to reach out to them with this with this glorious answer to a question that Pilate asked long ago. You remember the question? Pilate asked, what is truth? Dearly beloved, may we be bold to answer, here is truth. The truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's pray.